Hello and welcome to Chinese Revolutions, a podcast about how China came to be the way that it is today, looking at modern Chinese history through the lens of revolutionary movements in China starting from about 1839. I am your host, Nathan Bennett. I lived in China for seven years. This podcast is a love letter and a farewell letter to that country. The usual announcements. Uh, if you'd like to support the podcast, you can go to buymeacoffee.com slash crpodcast. Got our first monthly supporter this week. Thank you very much. You know who you are. Uh, please send me an email at chineserevolutions at gmail.com. And here we go for this week's episode. Last week was about the Taiping taking the city of Yongan and being there for six months. This gave them a chance to regroup, develop their core ideology, develop formal elements of the Taiping administration, which we'll actually see come into play uh, in this episode. And there was a discussion of whether hypocrisy delegitimizes a revolution and it saw Qing forces starting to box the Taiping in, so they needed to escape. This week we're taking them all the way to Nanjing. This episode may be a little long, but this one is rather exciting, so I think you will enjoy it. Uh, it's constant campaigning for a bit over a year, maybe like a year and three months, they are covering a phenomenal amount of territory uh, it, with great sophistication. I mean, it's right up there with the with the long march of the communists in its epic scale and just how rough this is going to be. Uh, the main material we're drawing from for this episode is again God's Chinese Son by Jonathan Spence and the uh, period we're starting to describe is is a is over a year of hard campaigning across hundreds of miles of extremely rugged territory I've been over this I've been through a lot of this area on the train several times uh, it just the amount of the amount of work, blasting tunnels, laying tracks, uh, paving highways to make all of China accessible the way that it is today. I, I, it, it was a colossal effort for, you know, millennia, this part of the world, you know, the rivers were how you could get around because rivers are, you know, flat smooth like water because they are water uh, so you know going from yongan to where the city of wuhan today is is 500 miles or 800 kilometers as the hedgehog on a rocket ship flies you know but it's going to be longer than that because they have to take what waterways they can find. Uh, they have to 
go through they have to go around uh, Qing force they have to go around Qing fortifications so it's many more miles as the hedgehog meanders it's not exactly straight but they're, they're going to go very fast at certain points uh, from southwest china to where wuhan sorry as i was writing this episode i you know, I, I thought i was going to get you up to where wuhan now is but then it like just the taiping they moved so fast from what is now wuhan that my notes are inaccurate. The, the, the Taiping went even faster than my notes. Um, and then Wuhan to Nanjing is 375 miles or 600 kilometers. I think I found that, like, that's direct, um, you know, from, you know, from A to B, but it's going to be a good deal longer following the Yangtze River. Um, the Taiping are going to show exceptional skill in disguise and misdirection on their move to Nanjing. Like they're, they're going to send, you know, agents and, you know, scouts ahead. Uh, and uh, so here we'll pick up the story at their departure from Yongan. Uh, as they were, as they would go, they would pick up uniforms, unit flags, insignia, equipment off of dead Qing soldiers. You know, a good disguise will have the right uniform, the right patches, standard equipment. So like if you're, you know, hey, I'm an American soldier and you're, you know, wearing a German army backpack and a Dutch overcoat and Italian trousers, yeah, no, uh, they replenished their supplies of gunpowder from uh, some of the, the Qing forces they defeated. Um, and unemployed miners were joining the Taiping army, and this is really going to help their siege warfare capabilities and their ability to assault fortifications. You know, because that's, that's not just digging a hole, it's digging a tunnel, it's building the frameworks to keep the tunnel open. Uh, you know, if you need to change course in the tunnel, it's knowing how to round a corner and continue building the frame to keep the tunnel open. And then you have to assess the ground in which you'll be digging. So, you know, if you need to dig, if you need to start digging a mile that way, or, you know, yeah, we can dig here, but we're going to need to make extra careful provision for this or that. Well, the miners know all that. Um, or if you need to assess that, yeah, no, this, this ground is just too risky to, to deal with. Uh, if you need to dig further away from the enemy so they can't see where you're going in, the miners know all that, or at least they know how to do it, uh, if not make the plans. Um, the Qing forces ahead of the Taiping escape included a former bandit, a defector from the Taiping, a guy named Big Head Yang, I wonder if I wonder how big his head was. Uh, by you know, he kind of let the Taiping escape because this prolonged his usefulness to the Qing. You know, so like this is a recurring reality in a lot of revolutionary wars. It's not black and white. Us and them, no help for the other side at all. Kill them wherever they emerge. They go back and forth all the time. You know, sometimes you uh, allow your enemy to live a while so that you can 
milk the support of the central government or foreign powers to keep you in power. And so you use the enemy as the reason why they should support you to to suppress this common threat. The and apparently, um, Big Head Yang controlled stronger waterborne forces uh, that could have cut off the Taiping advance at a critical time, but he just let him go. Also, at some point, the Taiping give him a nice big bribe, and that additionally helps them, helps him, help them. They help each other. Interestingly, the disguises backfire when the Taiping advance on the city of Guilin, which is apparently a very beautiful city. I just never got there during my time in China. Uh, Guilin hadn't heard that the Taiping were on the move, that they'd left Yongan and that they were campaigning again. Taiping troops dressed in Qing uniforms, they used Qing unit flags and tried to bluff their way into the city. Uh, but a general, you know, riding hard uh, to get to get away from the Taiping uh, and get on to Guilin, he sees Qing troops where none should be right now. And so he hurries up and he goes into the city, he informs the defenders of the situation, and he orders the gates closed. So, okay, well, I guess that didn't work this time. Uh the Taiping besiege Guilin for 33 days. They don't break in, they don't make it, uh, but the Taiping manage to use the siege to rest their forces, seize boats, and build up their water transportation capabilities. And so this vastly improves their logistical capacities, uh, carrying food, supplies, money, because they're looking to replace the government, they need to be able to carry any religious tracts that they've printed. They need to carry non-combatants. They need to carry archives. They need to carry the treasury. Actually, one of the strategies that ancient Chinese guards would use when they're carrying gold from one place to another is you know, when bandits come out, the guards run away to save their own lives, but the gold is so heavy that it's not like the bandits are going to be able to take it all away. So uh, so they leave the very, very heavy gold there and then come back. So the 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 Taiping have boats now, so the, the boat just, just goes. Uh, and so they can take all their stuff with them. And the Taiping head north to the Yangtze. Uh, as the as they buy as they're trying to bypass a fortified city, a soldier on the wall shoots Feng Yunshan, uh, one of the the main companions of Hong Xiuquan in the very very beginning of the Taiping movement. Uh, and so the Taiping decide not to bypass that city. They set siege to the city, kill everybody inside. June 3, 1852, they breach the walls and put the city to the sword over the next two days. Uh, along the way, they seize more boats. They seize um, more supplies. 
and more troops can ride and not march, and they have a line of boats on the river and columns of troops marching along the the river bank, and uh, they they're moving so fast that they fall into an ambush set by a local official who he will take the time to profile because he foreshadows a lot of the arrangements that are going to finally defeat the Taiping. So this guy, his name is... Okay, let's okay, zoom out a bit before we get to him. Okay, let's look at the weakness of the Qing forces. They're commanded by Manchus, not quite local not quite locally loyal and reliable. Actually, the central government troops were feared because you know, they would rob locals. They would, you know, if they if they thought you had a very nice house, they, maybe they would suspect you of supporting whoever they came to repress. And my goodness, your head is off now. And we That's a very nice house. Thank you very much. They would, you know, they... And it's not like they were one hundred percent competent. Uh, the uh, you know the Chinese state was able to stay in power you know well enough for its own purposes, but there's a reason why rebellions develop. Uh, the there are local militias, but they're not quite you know structured, trained, and they don't have the logistical you know support to do a lot more than repel bandits. Uh, the, uh, you know, it's like your, your local police department is taking on like international organized crime. Like, yeah, no, unless you get the FBI helping you out or something like that. Like, yeah, no. Um, the, uh, the forces that defeat the Taiping will be locally recruited. The uh, local loyalties, personal connections to the, to the commander, uh, to each other, you know. From what I can tell right now, the Taiping w will be conclusively defeated. Internal Chinese politics will stifle moves toward comprehensive reform after the defeat of the Taiping, and foreign interference will simultaneously help modernize Chinese government uh, and the state apparatus while stifling native Chinese innovation. Um, the, you know, because, like, like for one of the things we're going to find out in, a, in an episode um, very, very soon is, like, the foreigners were building China's customs department. Like, okay, great, thanks for the you know, modern government structure and stuff, but you're running it and not us. Like, this isn't totally ours. So yeah, they'll build railroads, but those railroads aren't Chinese. You know, they're not; they don't belong to the Chinese. So the Chinese don't feel the ownership. We'll we'll get into all that later. So the the official who lays this ambush is Jiang Zhongyuan, and he's a scholar from Southern Hunan. He like actually passed the scholar exam, the uh, the civil service exams. And he has more resources, more bureaucratic contacts than previous opponents of the Taiping had. And so he first started organizing local militias in the late 1840s, and he was fighting off raids by non-Han tribes. The Yao are specifically mentioned in Goddess Chinese Sun. Um, and they suppress local sects and secret societies, 
and part of his goal also was to get locals into his militias to keep them out of these you know secret societies and things uh, and part of Jiang's Jiang's success is that you know, he was promoted and posted far away, but his brothers and his family friends kept the militia together. So there was local patronage that kept this armed force in being. And so when Jiang's father died, he went back to his hometown, which was close to where the Taiping were coming through, and you know, so he was fulfilling the uh, the mourning traditions. And while he's on hand, local commanders summon him and his militia to help oppose the Taiping. He participated in some campaigns outside of the ambush that we're about to describe. But you know where where he really does it is where where he he sets this ambush he he is part of the he's part of the bigger picture he's not just some local governor or some local elite trying to suppress these crazy you know sectarians he's he has the backing of you know much bigger powers and so he can he can move forward with a lot more confidence. He chooses a stretch of the river that's easy to block, ideal for ambush, and he and his troops set obstacles to block boats. Uh, 10,000 Taiping troops are killed or drowned, like, as a proportion of Taiping forces. Like, that's the kind where you're starting to look at, like, serious battlefield defeat. Um, they had, like, a few tens of thousands uh, and you know many of these were the original converts from the Thistle Mountain area. Three hundred boats burned, sunk, or captured, and the uh, the wounded Feng Yunshan dies in the attack. So we're that that one guy on the wall in that one city that the the Taiping were trying to pass. He wounds Feng Yunshan, but he finally dies in this ambush, uh, and. Uh, and Jiang's forces could have done more damage if another commander had followed through on his promise to set up another ambush. Um, he, so with this this local militia, you know, uh, perpetuated by his own family, uh, and that he had that they had personal loyalty to to him. These, this is the force that. This is the kind of force that starts to really be able to defeat the Taiping. We're going to see this on a much, much bigger scale when uh, we introduce the, the character of Zheng Guofan later. He, he's a very interesting character, and uh, we'll, come to him. we'll get to him when we get to him. So the, the Taiping run away from the remaining boats. They run over into Hunan province, which is one province away from the coast, but it's very, very solidly inland. They can't advance because Qing forces have cut bridges. Uh, their low troop numbers mean that they have to stop and recruit from the local population. 
and though there might be locals to join, it's doubtful whether they would actually be, you know, true believers in the Taiping ideology. And so the, the Taiping need to, uh, go back to the drawing board a bit and look at what message they're going to use to draw new troops to their cause. And so they really turned to emphasizing overthrowing the Qing dynasty. They, a lot of the language is meant to appeal to secret society members, They're emphasizing the role of Hong Xiuquan as the guy they're trying to put in power, as they're digging into racial differences, attacking the foreignness of the Manchus. So they're, they're not going with the secret society idea of restoring the Ming, but they're elevating the uh, the head of the Taiping movement as the guy they're trying to get in as the next emperor, and so they're digging into racial and so they're uh, so digging into the racial differences. Like they're they're talking about you know the Manchus defiling Chinese women or uh, employing numerological references used by secret societies to really you know, hit their lingo and. Um, so they they do appeal to these these uh, these hard campaigning bandits who have been you know resisting Qing authority in one way or another for years, and so their messaging is very Chinese, and they thousands of recruits, maybe twenty thousand, and being local, they speak the local dialect. Uh, you they're useful as scouts and infiltrators, so like they they talk like the people there, so they can go ahead and you know find out what's going on and you know find out how you know well fortified cities ahead are or um, and these are tough bandit types and they're ready for hard campaigning. And so the the Taiping advanced to the city of Changsha in Hunan. Changsha is actually a city that will come back when we get into the life of Mao Zedong. Before we step into the fun of the action around Changsha, let's talk about revolutions here. A revolution can employ armed forces not totally committed to the revolutionary ideology. So when a revolutionary regime you know, establishes itself and they need to consolidate power and they need to preserve their own power, you know, the revolutionary core needs to preserve the initiative. You know, they're the ones calling the shots. You know, and sometimes they can piggyback on the grievances of other parties. They can gather support of other interested groups. But there's kind of a liability giving up key parts of their own agenda. So far, the Taiping have a solid, we're going to overthrow the Qing program that a lot of Chinese can get on board with. Because they're the foreign Manchus. Um, it really is astonishing how long people can spend, like with a religion or a movement, and to not really be conscious of what it's about, what the core beliefs are. So the, you know, the, the Taiping have this weird cult thing that they're doing, but a lot of the people joining them now, I, I, I I'm not sure how much they buy into it. When a revolution takes institutional power, some of those later who rise in the ranks will be the careerists who could threaten to legitimize, to delegitimize the revolution. 
you know, so when the Taiping move into new areas, will their former bandit followers be in it for the banditry, or will they, you know, so like, are they in it to steal for themselves, and now they just have a really big bandit chief, or are they really believing in the movement? You, you know, you see this in, like, say, the Turkish War of Independence with Mustafa Kemal Ataturk. Some of the forces supporting Turkish independence were, you know, mountain bandit groups. You know, but you know how much it, how much of their activity is because they support into the cause of independence versus you know here's another you know here's another campaign to get on board with and maybe we get access to new guns and have some fun that way so we'll see how the taiping deal with that once they get to nanjing so we'll go back to the action September 12, 1852, Chun Xiaogui, uh, previously the voice of Jesus, takes a small force and attacks Changsha, and they bombard the city with cannon, explosives, and fire arrows. They have the element of surprise, but not overwhelming force. The defenders have the advantage and hold out against the attack. And September 17, Chun is in his robes of office, presenting a tempting target, so some sharpshooter on the wall shoots and kills him. Uh, and so, in October 1852, after hearing about the death of Chen, Hong Xiuquan marches up to Changsha to besiege it, but he doesn't come in time to overpower the defenses, and Chen's attack galvanized the local authorities, and they rushed in reinforcements, and so this is going to be something that, that we'll see on, on their way to Nanjing. You know, they need to choose, okay, are we going to besiege this city or are we just going to move on and bypass the, the city? And if you ever read The Art of War by Sun Tzu, one of the things is you know, emphasizing the difficulty of taking a fortified city. It's really hard. So if you don't have to do it, don't do it. Um, and we see how luck here plays a role in war. According to Jonathan Spence, because of that ambush on the river uh, by that, that one official with the militia, Changsha could have fallen to the Taiping. Uh, but it, it didn't work out, so they couldn't crack that nut. Uh, Hunan is okay so just to you know reinforce this for you know people outside of china okay it's straight north like if you look at a map of china and you see a the big island off the south the south china coast not taiwan but hainan uh hunan is a good deal inland just straight north of that it's it's also straight northwest from hong kong it's a few hundred miles inland. It's right on a waterway uh, connecting directly to the Yangtze, and this and the Yangtze goes to Wuhan, what is today Wuhan, and 
this leads all the way to Nanjing, which is where we will end our episode. But we're about halfway through. This this show's not over yet. Leading the defense of Changsha is Luo Bingjiang, a very successful Confucian scholar, 20 years older than Hong Xuquan. And so we'll look more closely at people like him when we start following the book Autumn in the Heavenly Kingdom by Stephen Platt. Successful Confucian scholars have multiple overlapping ties that make them a bedrock of any Chinese regime. They may have studied together, so they have the classmate tie. They may come from the same family, you know, because adequate resources to send more than one child to school you know, to pass the tests. This means that they can recommend to their also you know, Confucian civil servant superiors, you know, somebody they know very reliably, you know, their brother, as, you know, another person they can bring with them. They, they've studied the same core materials, they've shared philosophy, they have shared philosophies of government, uh, they have shared language and vocabulary for discussing state matters, so the the Confucian scholars are going to be the core of the Chinese response to the Taiping Rebellion. In so we advance to late November eighteen fifty two, the Taiping cannot crack Changsha. They they do get practice with advanced siege techniques, tunneling, blasting. They get new gunpowder supplies from southern Hunan. Um, they're building pontoon bridges. Um, they seize thousands of boats and ships, enabling them to capture more ships on the you know, on the river there. And they further develop their naval signaling systems, drums and cannon by sound, and flags by sight. They decide to abandon the siege, and they just keep moving north onto the Yangtze and they're gathering more recruits along the way and so they're using policies that when they that they developed when they held the city of Yongan for 6 months you know plus additional regulations developed on the way and they they kept astonishing army discipline that's you know it's easy for some guy sitting on a horse to think of some brilliant maneuver but if the people you're giving instructions to don't get it. It's not going to happen. You know, you can envision, you know, a pincer movement. Aha, we'll get them on both sides and we'll surround them and annihilate them. If you ever read a Civil War history, it's like they they keep envisioning some total annihilation move that, like, never happens. Um in the so they they go north to the city of Wuchang which is part of what is today Wuhan Wuhan being a combination of three older cities um in this area of China with a lot of rivers and waterways so as they go along they abandon boats and they seize others they you know make quick use of pontoon bridges they cross rivers and then come back again to attack the weaker waterfront side of a city. Uh, like, so when they... So the, the big city here is Wuchang. 
And so what they did was they, they went across, the, the Taiping went across to the smaller cities or towns of Hanko and Hanyang, and then they crossed down, they, they, they crossed the Yangtze again into Wuchang and defeated the, uh, the Qing forces holding that city. And when I, actually when I visited Wuhan some years ago, I went in and out of the train station at Hanko. Um, so it's, it's kind of fun seeing that. I had fun in that city. Anyway, so, uh, remember Wuhan. It's going to be pivotal in some future revolutions. So it's going to be important for the movement to overthrow the Qing, the Wuchang uprising, the, uh, the establishment of the nationalist government is, is going to take some steps through Wu, uh, Wuhan, and the rise of the Communist Party of China is going to have a Wuhan stage or two. This, the, the city name Wuhan is, is a combination of Wuchang, Hankou, and Hanyang. So Wuhan, you pick some parts out of that and you, you get this combined name. The Taiping forces crossed the Yangtze northward, took Hanyang and Hankou, and came back south to Wuchang. And the Qing governor tried offering bounties for the heads of Taiping scholars, but the population wasn't really enthusiastic about fighting here. And so they used all the sophisticated methods they'd been working out in their hard drive north, um, and the Taiping took Wuchang, the, the, their largest hall yet. They got piles of wealth from the homes of Qing officials and wealthy merchants, military supplies, weapons, gunpowder, ammunition, artillery. They plundered the city treasury, over a million ounces of silver, uh, you know, one-tenth of all the assets of the inhabitants who remained. They, they took... They opened jails, freed prisoners, they disarmed common soldiers of the, the Qing armies, and they formed Taiping militias to guard the walls of the city of Wuchang. Um, and they took 2,000 boats from the city. Uh, and they the, and they did an ideological rearrangement of the population, so trying some of their population control measures uh, they promoted the Taiping religion. They enforced sex segregation. So men would live in one place, women and children sent to another place. Uh, old people were sent to care homes. Uh, and rationing was implemented for the, ma for the main combat forces. You know, but then, bizarrely, they, they don't stay in Wuchang. Like a cloud of locusts, they, they strip the, they strip the city of Wuchang and they move on to Nanjing. February 10, 1853, the Taiping are off again. And in the marching orders, sailors are given a lot of latitude in how they act so they can uh, one of the major things that differed, you know, between the Taiping and subjects of the Qing, um, under the Qing, 
the Manchus forced the Han Chinese to like shave the front part of their heads and then the rest of their hair they had to grow a grow grow it out really long in a braided ponytail called a you know a queue well the the Taiping as a sign of haha we're out from under these filthy barbarians they just let all their hair grow out well the the sailors they could keep their hair the way they wanted sex segregation was out uh they they just needed the sailors to help them advance 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 speed was the absolute most important thing uh th- there's always the the issue of getting away from your base area but the 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 taiping needed to knock out the qing dynasty or else they or else they might not win. Um, the city of Nanjing was 600 miles or 965 kilometers downriver on the Yangtze from Wuchang. Jonathan Spence uh, calls it the the soul of China's richest province. Uh, and, you know, it was a center of scholarship. It is the capital of the founder of the Ming dynasty. And along the river, you know, between Wuchang and Nanjing, uh, cities, forts, loyal forces, ships. But you know, I've been emphasizing the rivers for this very reason. Okay, it's the straightest road you could possibly take at the time. Now there's very nice highways, trains, airports. But you know the river pushes your boats along. Boats carry your supplies and troops. They bypass cities and forts offering resistance. They pause to empty the treasuries of cities that surrender. Spies and messengers are sent ahead to spread the Taiping gospel, as it were, you know, and they give notices of what to expect when the Taiping arrive. Execution threatened for looters. Um, upper classes should take down awards from serving the Qing, you know, the, the Manchu foreigners and their promised Taiping replacements. There will be new examinations for a new civil service based on the Taiping ideology. This trip took 30 days. Uh, you know, a month is you know, when you might get the news, but they moved in 30 days. Like this... Like I, I thought about you know how to structure this episode in the next one, and just there's so much happening so fast that you know just screw it. This is one episode. They the Taiping just just moved really fast, um, and when they when they get to Nanjing, they. They brought together all of their accumulated skills in assaulting fortified cities, tunneling under walls, combat engineering with pontoon bridges, undermining siege ramps, blasting fortifications, you know, artillery, infantry assault, infiltration, propagandizing the Han population against the Manchu. In just a few days, they stormed and took the city of Nanjing. And you know this is an enormous city and in a, you know when we get to the final defeat of the qing we'll talk about the siege laid by qing forces to retake the city it's going to take a long time 
with a lot of effort to finally beat them. And I, I, you know, I don't know how the Qing were able to manage this so fast. It's like the Taliban every time they take over Afghanistan. When they first did it, they were lightning fast. Uh, when they advanced in 2021, they were lightning fast. It just, you know, it's like one moment they're on the other side of the country, the next moment they're banging on your door, and I hope you've got a helicopter to take you out. And Hong Xuquan enters the city like an emperor. And the the Chinese emperor in Beijing was in rage and despair. And all his officials around him were depressed. Some of them had been defeated directly by the you know, by the Taiping or had lost control or they just didn't know what to do and he's blaming people left and right. But for all their speed in their seizure of Nanjing, the Qing are not overthrown yet. Though the Taiping could maybe have won, they didn't permanently knock out their chief rival. The Taiping are not a neat, great step forward, you know, replacing the Qing as a Chinese dynasty, because they've got this weird cult. It's a Chinese twist on a foreign religion, and they don't just demand political loyalty like, you know, you do honor to the Chinese character that's the name of our dynasty, but otherwise we let you live your own life. They have this weird religion they want to impose on their subject populations, and so that might help them keep the troops together for you know the next 10 years, which is what it's going to take, but do they have something that they can hand on to a next generation? The answer is going to be no. They're going to be defeated, and it's going to be bloody. This is one of the bloodiest wars in the history of the world. And foreigners have critically inserted themselves into Chinese affairs and will critically intervene. Which brings me to the next point. For the next two or three episodes, we're going to be looking at what foreigners have built in China since the end of the First Opium War. And yes, there's a first because there's a second but that will come later in our coverage of the Taiping Rebellion. The foreigners are building nice little settlements for themselves, but they're also laying the foundations for the comprehensive overhaul of the Chinese state, sort of to bring it up to code, if you will, to integrate it with the modern international diplomatic system. And that lays more seeds for future revolutions... But for now, thank you for listening to this episode for this week. Have a good week. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you can go to buymeacoffee.com slash crpodcast. Please send me an email at chineserevolutions at gmail.com. I have been your host, Nathan Bennett, and thanks again for listening.